Question. Have you ever been forced to respect or follow orders from someone that you feel was undeserving? Maybe an undeserving employer. Maybe, you know, the kind of person who loves power and loves influence and loves reminding you that they possess both. Or maybe you've had to do school under an unqualified or ill-prepared professor, knowing that that individual has power over your grades, and so you felt pressure to show respect to somebody, frankly, who was unrespectable. A little bit closer at home, have you grown up or are you growing up in a situation where the one who holds the office of mom or dad in your life is one who does not hold that office in a respectable way? Have you struggled to show love and respect to a parent who fails to show the same? Those are difficult situations. Sometimes people who hold positions of power and influence are undeserving of either. This is a travesty. In addition to making a mockery of the office, it also puts those under in an extremely difficult situation. And I think that many of us have been there. People are forced to deal with the conflicting emotions of wanting to show respect to the office, boss, teacher, parent, government official, while also recognizing that the one who holds the office is not worthy of respect. Well, this is the situation that the Jewish people found themselves in during the days of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, now listen, he said to the crowds regarding the religious leaders of the day, do what they say, but not what they do. Imagine being in a situation where you've got to tell others, hey, do what they say, but not what they do. And God forbid that any of you parents here this morning say those words in your home. Do what I say, not what I do. But that's exactly what Jesus had to tell the crowds in Matthew 23. More completely, he said this, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. The words they speak are true because they're speaking the word of God, but frankly, they're hypocrites. So don't follow their example. And Jesus says, because they sat on Moses' seat as teachers of the law, they were to be granted due respect. Well, that's interesting. He's saying to the crowds, respect the office, but understand that presently it's being held by unrespectable men. Listen to the teaching because it's the word of God, but don't follow their example because they're hypocrites. What an awful situation. What an awful set of circumstances. People under obligation to show respect to unrespectable men. To receive from their mouths words that they themselves, the teachers, neither believe nor practice. What's the most likely result in a situation like that? I think the most likely result is that men and women will abandon even the true words that are being spoken by hypocrites. Because those words, again, are on the lips of hypocrites. Thankfully, in Matthew 23, when Jesus said this, listen to the words, but don't follow their example, he understood that just around the corner was going to be a change in administration. God was going to change the situation and take out the hypocrites. Jeremiah, the prophet, in Jeremiah chapter 3, speaking of this time, the Lord says through him, I will give you pastors according to mine own heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. The day is coming when the Lord will ensure that there be spiritual leaders who are following the heart of the Lord. Uh, Those who are not hypocrites. Hopefully, we can see that this is God's design today for the church. Sadly, however, there are plenty of churches you can look at and say, you know what, I think we're in the same situation as the Pharisees. we got men holding positions of authority and influence, uh, holding a spiritual office who seem to not be worthy of the respect that the office uh, itself deserves. Hypocrites. Those you can say, yeah, what they're saying is true, it's biblical, but look at their life. Well, this morning what we're going to see is that God has designed our faith in such a manner that the Bible teacher, the pastor, the elder, the leader, are called by God to be living examples of the things that they teach. 
Every preacher and teacher ought to be a walking and talking illustration of the values that he instructs others to follow. That's God's design for leadership in the church. Instead of his hearers having to sort through kind of like the the landfill of his life, looking for, you know, maybe just a morsel of palatable food. Those who follow the spiritual teacher, the elder, the pastor, ought to have the confidence that not only can they receive the words from their mouths, but they ought to be able to look at the lifestyle of a teacher and say, you know what, I'd be well served if I were just to follow that example. The New Testament writers assume a harmony between the words and the actions of the church's leaders, unlike the case of the Pharisees, where their hearers had to be warned about the disparity between their words and their teaching. We read this in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Now listen, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The assumption is that the leaders in a church are those whom the congregation can look at and just say, hmm, look at his home life. Look at his spiritual walk. Look at how he handles struggles. Look at how he handles frustrations. Be able to look at the lifestyle of the leader and say, you know what, I would be well served if I simply imitated their faith. A few paragraphs later, the writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so the writer of Hebrews could confidently say, Imitate, obey, submit to your leaders, because... The men who held the office were commanded by God to not only preach, but to live the things that they preached. The people could consider the outcome of their way of life and see that the faith they preached was real and effective and livable. Oh, this is not just theory, but we can look at at, at a body of men and say, you know what, I can see it in practice in their lives. And so this morning... As we continue our series on eldership or spiritual leadership in the church, and, and let me just remind you, this is very practical for you. Number one, it's practical for you because you as a congregation are called to appoint men who satisfy these qualifications. And so this is your authority, and this is your responsibility, and so this is very applicable to you that way. But it's also applicable in another way, and that is men who are called to leadership in the church are simply called to exemplify the Christian character that all believers are called to Uh, practice. And so it's very practical that way too. And so please understand that as we talk about the qualifications of elders in the next few weeks, we're not saying these are the qualifications of a few spiritual elites and everybody else is off the hook. No. Elders are called to exemplify the character qualities which all men are called to, all Christian men are called to, and women are called to exemplify, called to live. And so... The writer of Hebrews could say, watch their faith, watch the result of their faith, watch the outcome of their faith, and then imitate. That is, if you looked at the results, the character, the life choices of of an elder, of a pastor, would you see evidence of blessing? If you place the teaching of an elder next to the lifestyle of an elder, would you see harmony or would you see hypocrisy? Teaching and demonstration, those two are never to be separated. That's why the Word of God is so full of theology and biography. Theology and biography. So you can go to Hebrews chapter 11 and say, well, these are the lives of men and women who live lives of faith. Look at it in practice. Look at what our faith can do. It was never meant to be simply theory or theology, but also practice. Not simply the conveyance of theology, but through men living out what they teach. And so... If you're here this morning and you're a man where you think, you know, I I may be aspiring to the office of elder. I have that desire. Understand that the lives of elders are meant to showcase what it looks like when believers actually live out the theology they claim to believe. In this way, their hearers can see their teaching is not mere theory, but the path to spiritual transformation. So... Elders are to not only accept the fact that people are always watching their lives, but actually invite them to do so. Elders ought to be able to say, like Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Our character and lifestyle should not be something we feel hesitant about sharing with others, but should be regarded as an essential complement to our teaching. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, said this, as Timothy labored to encourage the church in Ephesus. 
He said, let no one despise you for your youth. Hey, young men, do you ever feel kind of like the culture has shifted against you a little bit? Young man, do you feel like maybe there's some prejudices against you as a young man? Timothy felt this in Ephesus as well. He's a young guy. He's there leading the church, and there were natural prejudices in the culture against him because of his youthfulness. Because what are young men known for, sadly? Right? Number one, not very good judgment. Right, Zach? I say that because he's got a boot on his foot back there. Uh, Maybe a lack of judgment, impulsiveness, giving into their passions, perhaps, uh, oftentimes, a prolonged immaturity, uh, lingering too long in adolescence. All this can lead the culture to judge young men. And so Paul told Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. Well, how would a young man ensure that others don't despise him for his youth? He says, but set the believers an example. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourselves in them, so that all may see your progress. Paul said to Timothy, as one who is leading the church and putting churches in order, you've got to be an example. Set an example for others, so they can look at you and they could see your progress. And notice that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. We're going to talk about that tonight, maybe discuss what that actually means in detail. But the idea was that as a young man, let, let the congregation, let others see what happens when you actually employ the means of grace. Let your spiritual growth be put there for all to watch. Let them see you grow in your knowledge of Scripture. Let them see you grow in your pursuit of holiness. Let them see you grow in your knowledge of who God is. Let them see you grow in how you minister to others and how you interact with others. Let them see you make progress in how you handle the disappointments and struggles in life. That's what it is to be an elder, to be called to be a spiritual leader. Let others watch you grow and develop in the faith. Let let others be able to watch your life and be able to confidently say, you know what? We've watched him and we've seen his progress. As Titus labored in Crete, Paul encouraged him likewise in Titus chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model, to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The unbelieving Cretans had a reputation for being liars and vicious and lazy and gluttonous. In other words, they were the exact opposite of what believers were to be. And what Paul is saying here to Titus is make sure you live in such a way so that if there are opponents from the culture looking at your life, when accusations do come from them, they will be put to shame because of your blameless character. That's the idea. Now, I told you to turn to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. We're going to get there in just one second. But in just those passages we've, we've looked at this morning so far, notice just how comprehensive the example of elders are to be. Paul tells Timothy, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And that basically covers everything. In that short list, we see that spiritual leaders are to remain exemplary in what they say and how they behave and what they feel and what they believe. We're called upon to set an example in our words and our emotions and our beliefs and our passions. Just in case one might feel something's left out, Paul says to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And so when one steps into the office of elder or spiritual leader, he steps into the spotlight, offers his entire life as an example for others to follow. Now, does that mean elders are perfect? Obviously not. I'm an example of that, certainly. And there's no, does that mean there's no room for failure in any of these areas? Absolutely not. It's not what it means. But even failures are to be handled in an exemplary way. And so elders are to be an example in confessing sin, practicing repentance, seeking reconciliation whenever necessary. Elders, like all believers, are sinners still, sometimes weak, prone to failure, wholly reliant upon God's grace and mercy. So in addition to modeling godliness and holiness, elders must also model how to deal with failures when they happen. Now, Paul 
And now we're going to actually get to the text that I asked you to turn to. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. Paul uses a phrase in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and Titus chapter 1, verse 6, to kind of encapsulate this whole idea of an elder setting this sort of example for the church. And the phrase he uses is this. It's that an elder ought to be above reproach. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, for, now, if you don't know the Bible very well, 1 Timothy and Titus are oftentimes what we call the pastoral epistles. Because this is the Apostle Paul writing to two men who were serving kind of in a pastoral capacity, one in Crete and the other one in Ephesus. And there we find awesome instruction uh, for what it is to be a pastor. And this is where we find the qualifications for eldership. So 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, Therefore, an overseer, an elder, a pastor, must be above reproach. And then Paul just describes what it looks like to be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, and it continues. That's to Timothy. Then Paul says to Titus, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach, and it continues. To be above reproach simply means to be beyond blame, unaccusable. It means that there's nothing in the man's character or lifestyle which opens him up to legitimate criticism. There's nothing which would cause others to undermine or dismiss his ministry as an ambassador of Christ. There's no glaring character faults which might weaken his credibility and cause others to kind of stumble over that and have a hard time accepting his teaching. And so after... Paul states that a potential elder ought to be above reproach, he then goes on to give a list of character qualities. Really what he's saying to Titus and Timothy is, you men be like this, but this is, this is a list of qualifications you can use then to find other men that can be appointed as elders. And so then Paul writes this. We're going to look at these passages again, but in full context, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now listen to these qualifications and recognize that these are not peculiar to elders, but these are the expected character qualities of all believers. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well and with all dignity, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, for he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. And then to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And now I went, took the time to read both of those passages at length because as a congregation, we recognize those passages as holding for us the qualifications for eldership. And so in submission to the word of God, we as a congregation say, as we consider men for the office, they have to be held to the standard of these texts. Absolutely essential. So we're going to take these in the, next, in the coming weeks as qualifications for eldership. We're going to start today by considering the first thing that Paul says in both of these passages. If a man is to be considered for eldership, he must be above reproach. And Paul focuses first and foremost on this man being above reproach in his home life, in his home life. There's no better measure for the genuineness of your faith and my faith than how we live it out at home. Once you leave the doors and you have a reputation to maintain at work or a reputation to maintain even at church, it's not 
necessarily the best measure of the genuineness of your character. What happens behind closed doors and what happens uh, within the relationships with whom you are most familiar, that's really where true character comes out and shines. That's true for all of us here today. And I hope that none of you are sitting here this morning as hypocrites, coming to church with a spiritual facade on, going home, shutting the door, and being anything but an exemplary believer. And so a measure of genuine character, the authenticity of faith, is often seen at home. And for this reason, Paul now puts the emphasis, Titus, Timothy, peer into a man's home life and then make a judgment as to whether or not he's qualified. And so Paul puts a heavy emphasis upon what? How a man treats his wife, how a man raises his children, and how a man manages his household. The first thing he says, looking for Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 6 again, says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. And you say, well, that one's easy. Uh, it's actually illegal to marry more than one woman, so we're all good, right? Move on. This is not talking about polygamy. The Greco-Roman culture, which surrounded Titus and Timothy, encouraged sexual promiscuity. The wealthy elites were known, and it was just commonplace, to have the wife with whom you were legally bound, but also to have a mistress for sexual enjoyment and concubines to produce other children. It was just commonplace. And so as Titus considered men for eldership, he would have to find men who came out of that culture of sexual promiscuity. These are men who understood the cultural sexual ethic was wholly incompatible with Christianity, and we say the same thing this morning. If you're a man who aspires for the office of elder, you have to leave behind the cultural notions of sexual morality and wholly embrace a biblical pattern uh, for your sexual expression. To be the husband of one wife does not, again, refer to polygamy, and it doesn't even mean that a man must be married. It means that a married man is faithful to his wife, faithful to his wife in all regards, faithful physically, faithful emotionally, faithful mentally, committed to the one woman with whom he is covenantally bound in marriage. That's what it means. He does not express his sexuality outside of his marriage bond, nor does he entertain emotional intimacy with other women. Such a man takes to heart the words of Solomon. Solomon chapter 5. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Are there any children here today? Cover their ears, okay? If you're a teenager, keep your ears open. Regardless of what the culture teaches about sexuality, I saw just recently that there's a prominent conservative political commentator who suggested that pornography was morally neutral. It's okay if it helps a man deal with his lusts and so on. That's not what the Bible teaches. Young men understand that what the culture teaches about sexuality, where it violates what the Bible teaches about sexuality, you need to embrace Scripture. Though pornography has become mainstreamed in our culture, it should not be mainstream for the believers. In fact, it's forbidden for the believer. Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 5, why would you be intoxicated with what? A forbidden woman. Embrace the bosom of an adulteress. This is not a victimless crime. Uh, this is a sin against God and his holiness. And not only that, but it's creating a scenario where you are going to be severely disadvantaged when the time comes for you to fully commit to one woman. Pornography does what? None of this is in my notes, by the way. But uh, pornography does what? It disconnects sexuality from intimacy. It disconnects sexuality from relationship. So that you're training yourself now to have sexual fulfillment without emotional connection. Your future wife then is going to be at a tremendous disadvantage because uh, you are used to what? Having sexual gratification at any time, at any place, whenever you want. Whereas marriage suggests that you must have relationship. You must have intimacy. You must have an emotional connection. And then the, the sexual union then is the climax of that relational union. 
The man who's addicted to pornography can let off or, or not care about relationship with his spouse because he can have sexual fulfillment whenever he wants, with whomever he wants, uh, whatever he wants to bring up upon his screen. Whereas biblically, what do we read? One man and one woman married for life in all sexual expression within the bounds of marriage. The husband of one wife. He has eyes and affection only for the woman to whom he's covenantally bound. And again, this goes far beyond being sexually faithful in marriage, but also speaks of the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 5.27, You have heard that it is said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And there we understand that lusting after the woman on the sidewalk, lusting after the woman on the TV screen, lusting after the woman on your cell phone, lusting after the woman uh, on your computer monitor, uh, all of this, Jesus says, is tantamount to adultery. A man's sexual energies are to be focused exclusively upon the woman whom the Lord has provided for him. In our sex-obsessed and pornography-laden culture, maintaining that sort of purity requires effort. It requires diligent, vigilant, deliberate effort. A man who is qualified for eldership, and I'm going to say as an example for all Christian men, is a man who's learned to use God's means of grace, coupled with practical boundaries and personal safeguards to harness his sexuality and to practice it in a God-honoring way. This likely means that he's employing both internal and external controls in his life. You see, there's, there's two dangers here. There's, there's two ditches here to avoid. On one hand, we say, well, this is just a matter of the heart, and so I just need to do that internal work, and then I will have the strength to endure sexual temptation that's, that I'm being bombarded with. And it's true, it is a matter of the heart. On the other hand, you say, I'm going to control my heart simply through external safeguards. So I'm going to have the internet filter, I'm going to give somebody else the password to that, and so on, I'm going to have accountability, and that will take care of my heart. But understand that you cannot have one without the other. You have the external safeguards so that you can protect the internal heart. The external safeguards might keep some temptation at bay uh, so that you don't make some rash, instant decision, and the next thing you know, find yourself on some pathway or some uh, spiral out of sexual control. Have the external controls, but understand that simply then to hold temptation at bay so that you can work on your heart. It's not one or the other, it's both. And so you have internal uh, safeguards, you have external safeguards as well. Internal controls and external controls. Many a man has sought to put external controls on his life, whether it be canceling this subscription, putting in this filter, and so on, and then finding that it hasn't done anything to curb their sexual desire or uh, tendency to fall into sexual temptation. The fact of the matter is, man, you can be locked up in a dark room all by yourself with no stimulus at all, and you're still left there with your mind. The external controls are necessary and helpful, uh, but understand that temptation is not going to be brought under control unless we pay heed to the means of grace. So, internet filters, accountability software, restricted mode on your search engines, your video sites, those are all possible safeguards. By using those means, a man makes a modern application of Solomon's words in Proverbs 5, verses 8. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. And what's, the, what's, what's the modern application? Like, don't go near that, uh, you know, it, w- 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 when you're just bored. Don't scroll through YouTube. When you got nothing going on, don't bring up Instagram. Stay far from her house, right? Have just common sense safeguards in your life. The wise man who values his purity will not be reckless in what he exposes himself to online or elsewhere. Further, the man who's committed to honoring God with his sexuality will have a healthy sexual self-awareness. Much of this applies to women as well, okay? Let's be equal opportunity, okay? And so feel free, ladies, to apply this to yourself as well. The man or woman who are committed to honoring God with their sexuality will have a healthy sexual self-awareness. What do I mean by that? You will recognize the circumstances under which you become most tempted. Is it when you're sad? When you're disappointed? When you're frustrated? When you're lonely? 
What is it that most gets you? And you know that this is a danger zone for me right now. Are you most tempted when you're physically or emotionally fatigued? That's a sexual self-awareness. With that type of awareness, you can anticipate temptation. You can learn to cope with weakness in a way that honors Jesus. I know I'm in a rough spot. I know that this is a danger zone for me. I know that I'm sad. I know that I'm disappointed. I know that I'm frustrated. I know that I'm lonely. So how can my relationship with Jesus, how can the means of grace, how can the ministry of the church help me in this moment to fill this void that I'm about to fill in an illegitimate way? None of this is to deny the reality that all men are faced with sexual temptation and all women are faced with sexual temptation. It is to say, however, that the godly man has learned how to respond to those temptations with self-control. He's learned how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not the passions of the lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God, according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. So the potential elder's commitment to his wife even goes beyond uh, sexual fidelity, however. It also has to do with social fidelity. That is, this man is not a flirtatious man. This man is not one who receives flirtation from women either. He recognizes that an emotional affair is as much a violation of his commitment to his wife as a sexual affair. Therefore, what does he do? Well, he doesn't maintain ongoing private relationships with the opposite sex, online or in person. He doesn't allow for such a connection in the workplace. He avoids even the appearance of impropriety, thus preventing the possibility of accusation or further temptation. In other words, where his interactions with women are concerned, this is a man who's consistently, what? Above reproach. Above reproach. And so, elders are charged with calling believers out of a culture, which is steeped in sexual deviance and into a lifestyle of purity, where sexual immorality and impurity is not even named among us, Paul says. You can't do that with any credibility, if that man has not first and foremost is not first and foremost the husband of one wife, well, we'll let some of the let some of the pressure out of that tire for for a minute here, and you can just relax. <laughs> and uh, we're going to shift gears and talk about how a man now manages his household. <laughs> and some of you say, "Oh no, go back to the other one." <laughs> uh, Paul says in Titus chapter one. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. He says to Timothy, if he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And so now Paul says, keep looking. Keep, keep looking behind that private door, right? The elder is not allowed to say, oh, uh, I'm going to slam the door to my home life, and you're not allowed to look inside here. What Paul says is swing the door open, and uh, others, the church, ought to be able to look and say, okay, we see how he lives out his life as a father and as a husband. And so manage your household well. Keep your children submissive. It appears that in those two passages, now this is very important, and I don't want anybody to misunderstand me and understand some of the things I'm about to say. There are some various approaches, and if you want to take a little bit different approach to, to the text, especially in Titus, then that's okay. But understand that the, Titus, the passage in Titus and the passage in Timothy, I believe, are dealing with children of two different age groups. And the reason I say that is because Titus in Crete is dealing with brand new churches. Paul has recently had an evangelistic effort on the island of Crete. You have brand new believers, very young churches. Which means that the men whom Titus is seeking out would not have had time to raise up the next generation of believers as if they're raising them from children to adulthood. However, when Paul writes to Timothy, he's in Ephesus. This church was founded uh, over 10 years earlier. And so you can imagine uh, a man is converted there in Ephesus. His young child is only nine years old. Well, this is 10 years later. Now that same boy is 19 years old. Well, that man has had time uh, to exemplify in his home the Christian faith, to share the gospel, raise his children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and to raise up believing children. Two different contexts, and we have to keep that in mind. So what's going on here? First of all, Paul to Titus. Apparently, these children were older because he says that if you're looking at a man for eldership, 
His children must be believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, debauchery is like serious, sinful rebellion. So these got to be kids, probably teens, late teens, or even early adulthood, who could be charged with that type of lifestyle. I mean, your, your, your toddler can be disobedient, but you're not going to say that she's debauched, okay? And so this is dealing with older kids. He's saying, when you're looking at the home life of a man in question, it should be clear that he has his household in order. Even if he has had, had not had time to raise up the next generation in the faith, the state of the home still reveals character, still reveals uh, consistency. This man has raised his children with loving affection and with deliberate instruction and with consistent correction, and it shows his household's in order. So why should the reputation of a man's children matter if it's just him that's being appointed to eldership? Well, you can imagine a modern scenario in which parents become disciples of Jesus, but their teens or young adults are rebels. They have no interest in the faith. They choose to carry on in sin, just like the godless culture all around them. They have a reputation of that in and outside the home. Social media ensures that that reputation spreads far and wide. And they have a reputation of debauchery, perverse living. In such a situation, just a matter of mere practicality, you can understand how if that man is appointed to eldership, how the lifestyle of his children, this is always out there for all to see, may set him and the church up for heartache. This man would have to deal with the sinful reputation of his children as a public figure. He would have to deal with the accusations from people, uh, whether right or wrong, about his fitness for office. He would have to face questions about his ability to manage the church, while apparently failing to manage his household. He would have to deal with charges of hypocrisy from unbelievers as they compare his teaching to the lifestyle of his own kids. He may even have to deal with his own personal doubts. You know what? I don't want to do that series on marriage, and I don't want to do that series on child-rearing because I feel like a hypocrite when I'm teaching on those things. Some may think it unfair to make the behavior of one's children a measure of qualification for eldership. After all, I mean, isn't this all just in the hands of the Lord? Salvation is of the Lord. There's some validity to that, certainly. But it's the Lord himself who has connected a man's home life to his fitness for office because it's the Lord himself through Paul who said he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? And so the Lord himself is the one who's made that connection. For these reasons, as Titus went from town to town assessing men for the office of elder, he would have to look for men whose households were in order. The men qualified for the office would be men who had well-managed homes, evidenced by the good behavior of his children. Now, I'm just going to skip over this quite quickly, but notice in verse 6, it says that these children are to be believing children. Believing children. Does that mean that they absolutely have to have come to Christ and and received Him as Savior and Lord? There's two different views on this. Some look at that and say, well, believing, that's the word pistis, which generally speaks of either saving faith or the character of one who has come to saving faith. Generally not applied to unbelievers. Uh, The other side says, well, I think this just has to do with being faithful because it can also be translated faithful or trustworthy. Jesus uses the word in his parables of the stewards. And so it could mean that these are believing children, and with that view, you could say, okay, but because the church in Crete was so young, this doesn't have to do with a man raising his children up to embrace the faith. That's not what's in view here. But what's in view is a matter of practicality. Find that man whose whole household has received Jesus as Savior and Lord, because that's just going to be a better situation for the church. On the other hand, you could simply say, well, this just means, believing or not, This man has respectable children. There's evidence that he knows how to parent and knows how to manage his household, uh, which helps us to see that he also will be able to manage the church. And so either belief as saving faith or belief as trustworthy, faithful children. There's evidence for both sides. I feel like most commentators side with the idea that it doesn't have to do with saving faith, potentially simply because that's the more comfortable position to take and you can have the freedom to to make your own decision there. But again, 
I think even if you take it as believing as saving faith, that the children of an elder must be saved is not necessarily a commentary on his parenting because the original context of Titus was that of new churches, men who wouldn't have had time to raise up their children in the faith. Instead, it's simply a matter of practicality. Find men whose household, households are saved. And so uh, it's important to keep the original context in mind. What this is not saying is if you appoint a man as elder, and at some point down the road the kids grow up and they don't embrace the faith, now this man is disqualified from office. That's not the original context here. The original context is go from town to town, find qualified men, and look for men whose children are believers. That's the original context, and we should keep it in the context. So, a man's household must be in order. But notice also, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, this man must manage his own household well with all dignity, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Well, that's interesting. Manage your household with all dignity. This means that this man has his house in order, and he has managed to have respectable children who are relatively obedient, who honor mom and dad, and so on. And he's managed to produce that type of environment in his home, and he has done it in a dignified way. Is it possible for a man to have submissive children who has achieved that submission in an undignified way? You've seen it. You've seen the mom and dad with their children, and the children certainly are submissive, but they won't make eye contact with you. They keep their heads down at all times, as if they're fearful that one wrong move is going to incur the wrath of mom or the wrath of dad. That's achieving submission in an undignified way. The one who manages his household well is not an authoritarian. He's not the heavy disciplinarian. He's not the one who demands respect, but he's one who behaves in a way which is worthy of respect. Being under authority is already trying. You know this, and that's why we started with the introduction by saying, have you ever been under that, what, employer? Have you ever been under that professor? Have you ever been under that government official? who you feel compelled to respect because of the office they hold, but have no respect for them as an individual because, frankly, they're unrespectable. Submission is already hard. Children are told, commanded by the Lord, to obey their parents. How cruel is it then to uh, impose upon the children that type of expectation while holding your office as mom and dad in an unrespectable way? Being unfair, unkind. Sarcastic, condescending, demeaning, inconsistent, indifferent, unreasonable. A father who manages his household well avoids anger, authoritarianism, permissiveness, absenteeism, unkindness, criticism, demeaning, humiliation, short-tempered frustration, overprotection unreasonable expectations, or a lack of affection. In everything that he does as a father, or you could say as a mother, they're careful to obey Paul's command to not provoke their children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And so, the man or woman who has a well-managed household are not simply a man or woman, father and mother, who have children who obey, but they're a mother and a father who have Uh, really secured that obedience through Christ-like character. So in conclusion, in many ways, our homes are the proving grounds for our faith. Marriage and parenting require us to exercise the fruit of the Spirit, the one another's of Scripture, and every other spiritual grace. It's within the context of the home where we are most vulnerable and where we are the most authentic. In many ways, what we are at home is what we really are. And it's for that reason that Paul says, because you're considering a man for eldership, look at the home. If a man is harsh and domineering and neglectful and unloving and unfaithful and undignified and self-centered and managing his household, you can be sure he's going to be the same thing in managing the church. 
The Lord has designed the office of elder in such a way that men are under constraint. And again, apply this to all believers. On the one hand, the Lord has commanded elders to be authentic examples of everything they preach. On the other, he's commanded believers to watch the lives of the elders and then to imitate their faith. God has commanded and everyone's watching. It seems that elders really have nowhere to hide. The command to be public examples sounds intimidating, yes, but it really does serve us well. It serves elders well. It provides a healthy scrutiny, which keeps elders accountable. It also ensures that believers always have examples of the faith lived out before them. You know what? I'm having trouble grasping the theology. Okay, well, look at the example of some godly people around you. It ensures that the gospel is never relegated to mere theology or theory, but is continually practiced before others. And so elders are called to be examples. Examples to the flock, which means they must live in a way that does not invite reproach. Nothing in the character or home life that opens them up to accusations of hypocrisy. By living this way, elders rob opponents of ammunition to accuse them, while also ensuring that those under their charge are never put in that difficult situation of having to parse the words and to receive kind of what is true coming from the mouth while understanding they can't at all look at the life or the example. The major arena in which our reputation is supported or undermined is that of our home, and so elders must have a healthy, God-honoring manage, uh, God-honoring marriage and well-behaved children. As husbands, we are called to only have eyes for our wives. We are to be devoted to her sexually and emotionally, taking appropriate action to guard our marriage and our purity, in and outside the home. As loving servant leaders, we are to invite the respect of our children while raising them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. We're to train our children to submit to our loving authority while never resorting to unloving or undignified means to secure it. We should seek to model the perfectly balanced character of our Heavenly Father who both loves us and disciplines us. And in all of this, we must remember that elders are still human, still subject to the same sin nature as every other believer, When minor sin or failures arise, elders also then should model vulnerability, confession, repentance, and then continue seeking to lead as examples of God's grace. I hope this morning as we talk about elders, you've understood where this applies, not just to elders, but to all of us. Please don't come for the next few weeks and say, oh no, we're still talking about elders. Why Why can't we get to something relevant? It's relevant, number one. You are charged with observing the lives of men around you and then eventually making recommendations for men you see who embody this type of character for eldership. That's your responsibility as church members. But also understand that elders are not called to a standard to which every other believer is not also called. And so if you're a man here this morning, you're called to exemplify this very same character with your wife and with your children in your home. And young men... What kind of future husband do you want to be? What kind of future father do you want to be? You don't exercise the right to sow your wild oats now, thinking you're going to get serious about life later, right? Uh, Live in a way now, respecting the Lord's design for your own sexuality, preparing yourself to honor him future in marriage. And then lastly, this morning, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, none of this is at all possible except by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we're saying here this morning is not. Here is a standard that we strive to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and just hope that we can reform ourselves and be examples to others. This is all the product of the Holy Spirit, only possible because Jesus Christ saves sinners. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you need to come to Jesus. Jesus died for you on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins. He incurred the wrath of God on your behalf so that then now if you place your faith in him, trusting him as Savior, submitting to him as Lord, believing in him by faith, the Bible says you will be saved. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe that he's been raised from the dead. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, you will be saved. The product of that then is God's indwelling Holy Spirit. And he now empowers you in a way that you were never empowered before to be all that he has called you to be in the power of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. 
And I pray that you'd help us as a church to take seriously your design for the church. I pray for us as a congregation that you help us to take up our authority and responsibility when it comes to assessing the qualifications of men and then appointing them to the position of elder. I pray that on one hand you would provide elders who live out the character qualities that we looked at this morning, and on the other, that you'd work in the congregation and give them a spirit of submission and even obedience to such men. We recognize that things kind of go haywire when either elders are not all they ought to be or the congregation is not fulfilling their responsibilities, and so we pray that both sides of this relationship would honor you. Qualified men in office, then a congregation who values those qualifications, loves their leaders, and even submits to their loving rule. So, Lord, we pray that you would continue to form and shape Calvary Baptist Church to follow your design. And, Lord, this morning we pray for men, men here this morning who are struggling with pornography. I pray that you would help them to see that they are seeking to cope with life, cope with what might be legitimate weaknesses in an illegitimate way. Help them to learn how Jesus fills the void that they are filling with sin. If they're married, I pray that you'd help them to develop relationship with their wives in such a way where uh, the need for intimacy, the need for relationship is fulfilled through that legitimate relationship and not through other means. Uh, I pray for women this morning who may have a husband who is struggling with pornography, I pray that you give that woman grace and uh, help her also uh, to be a support to her husband, to recognize that this is not a commentary on her as an individual, but is the product of her own husband's struggle with sin. So I pray that you'd help her uh, to pray for her husband and uh, to seek to be a help to him. And we just pray that you'll bless and uh, help men to seek purity, especially as we consider the need to have men who are pure, so that we can see men qualified for eldership. Uh, I pray you convict of sin, yes, assure such men of your grace and your mercy, and then help them to use your means to overcome such sin, internal controls and even external. And then lastly, Lord, we just pray for young men this morning. I pray that they would see that what the culture mainstreams and is presented to us as no big deal is a violation of your design, is sinful, violation of your holiness, and frankly, uh, is putting them at a tremendous disadvantage as they look forward to potentially having a healthy marriage in the future. And uh, we just pray for those who are unbelievers that they'd see their need for Jesus and understand that's only through his power that we can pursue such holiness. Lord, we thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.